segment we are speaking to russell kent uh, he has a new book jfk medical betrayal where the evidence lies hello russell hi len how's it going very good thank you so much for taking time uh to talk to people at black op radio here today and also i just want to start off by saying thank you for writing this book this you know i i feel funny saying this but um you know, every week I have somebody on and I said, this is a, you know, a must-have book. This is a book that I've researched this case for over 20 years and that. And I, I feel, you know, better, more knowledgeable for reading it. Although I know an awful lot of this, but you have done a really good job. I want to commend you. I know when I had Monica Wiesek on, I thought, no, people, you got to get her book. This is another book that I'm really recommending because I think people research the case they they already have a grasp of some of the things they know about uh, you know Latimer X-rays something but you have done a very good job and I just wanted to thank you for that because I almost felt like a you know in a sporting event they have a commentator so mm-hmm. as I was listening well I listened to your book as you know as an audio book kind of because I put I put it into my cell phone and that's how I read books these days I mm-hmm. I put it in and then a little voice reader will read to me. And um, so when I'm driving, and that's the only way I can get through all the books that I have to, or working on things. And it was uh, your insight to many of the things where, you know, we'll look, we'll get into the book in in a bit. But just off the top, I did want to thank you and let everyone know that I really thought highly of this book and and your work. Uh, so first of all, do you have a website? Do you, do you have anything that people can find more about you? Uh, do you know I don't I haven't put one together yet um, and that's I'm, I'm sorry about that it, it is totally my fault of course because as an author you that's one of the things that your publisher really wants you to do is market yourself uh, through a website um, but uh, after I published this and I've uh, been talking to um, a lot of different groups about it and I thank you very much for your comments Len that was very kind um, I, I was straight on to my next book and what authors want to do is write. They don't want to create websites. Um, so I haven't done that yet. Very remiss of me. Um, but well, we'll it, find it, out where the book is available. We'll make a link to that. Uh, sure, I think one of the good things about Black Op Radio is we, we offer links in the show notes. Yeah. So It's on Amazon, of course. Right, okay. Um, and you're welcome to uh, 
to put a link to my uh, web my email address. Uh, and if people want a hard copy, um, I'll do my best to get them one. Uh, it costs a lot to ship to the states. That's the only problem. I know. Uh, it's, um, sometimes the shipping is more than the book. Yeah, exactly. You know, I uh, I used to offer Black Op Radio mugs. I had mugs. It, it was just. Yeah. It, I had to stop doing it because it was just it's crazy. Some of yeah, the, I, you know, it is. It really is. And another reason why I um, I would recommend that people get the ebook is because. There are 750 references in this book, 250-page book, and the ebook book makes it so simple for you to follow those. You just click on it, um, and it will take you straight to the reference, and then click to come back to the part you were in the book. Um, so there's a lot to be said for ebooks these days. I know not everybody likes them. A lot of people prefer physical copy, and I know there's collectors of books out there. Um, so in that case, if people just drop me an email, I'll do my best to get to to them. Okay, so to start off, what caught your interest in this case, the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy? Well, I've always sort of been interested at a, an introductory level, if you like. Um, my mum my was always interested in the case. Whenever anything came on the TV or the radio that was um, about Kennedy, she would, she would listen and she would comment and she would always say to me, you know, um, that she, she thought there was something more to this. Um, and so I, I was always interested at that level, and I started to read more about it just before the um, the JFK, the Oliver Stone film, came out, um, because I, I was actually working in uh, Holland at the time, and well, there was a lot of interest in the press. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, um, there seems to be a bit of prejudgment going on there. I really must go and see this film. And luckily, in Holland, they show everything in the original language. So I was able to go and see it and understand it. And I, I really thought um, I really should get a bit more uh, information. And I was very lucky. This was what you remember when the JFK film came out. It was 1991, I think. Um, Amazon didn't exist to, to get hold of American books on the JFK case. And there were only American books at that time. You, know, you had to go to the States. And uh, I wasn't doing that at that time. But in Amsterdam, there happened to be an American bookshop. Uh, so I went there and I bought every book they'd got on the JFK case, um, read them. And then I contacted, I think it used to be called the Assassination Research Center in Dallas. And they were kind enough to put me in touch with a group in the UK who were um, re re researching the case, but really um, like minded people who just wanted to get together and discuss it. Uh, that was called Dallas 63, I think. Uh, anyway, when I returned to the UK, I got in touch with those people. And uh, because Dallas 63 was uh, based up north in England, uh, and we lived down in the south, we decided to create our own group, which was called uh, Dealey Plaza UK. And of course, as you probably know, that's still going. Um, I'm not a member, uh, but I do speak at their conferences every now and again. Um, but if I may go on to what I was really interested in, the medical side of the evidence, I was a, a medical scientist. I, I did a degree in physiology at London University and then went on to uh, one of the biggest teaching hospitals in London. It's uh, St. Thomas's Hospital, where I joined a group of medical scientists who were researching how to measure the levels of potassium in blood. Um, and we began uh, researching that and writing papers 
And as a co-author, I became a published scientist. And I, I realized two things from becoming a published scientist. Firstly, that primary references are very important. Uh, and I've tried to do that in my book throughout. I've tried to use as many primary references as possible. But I also realized how closely groups of doctors work together to produce papers and books. And as I read more about the JFK case, I wondered why so many doctors agreed with the autopsy um, when it was clear to practically everybody I spoke to that um, there was something wrong with it. And then, of course, uh, I read uh, Gary Aguilar and Kathy Cunningham's article, How Five Investigations into the JFK Medical Autopsy Evidence Got It Wrong. Uh, I think Pat Spear did some work on that as well. It was back in 2003. Um, and I thought, well, let's have a deeper look at the Clark panel and the Rockefeller panel and the HSA uh, Forensic Pathology panel and look at the careers of those doctors. And I was in a unique position that I knew that doctors often worked closely together. So I wondered whether there were any relationships between those doc doctors which would be informative. And so I, I seem to have spoken a long time. Did you have another question? <laughs> yeah. Liz. Oh, no. I, you know, no, I, so I just keep going. Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. always interested because I, I know how I got interested, but when an author is on, I want to know, well, well what, was the, what was the catalyst? Something must have really piqued your interest, and then you you know, decided to really get into it. And then I ask, I say, well, what, once you learned a, a certain amount of knowledge, what, what, can't think of a better word, but catalyst, but uh, to get you to yeah. write about it, because you've really delved yeah. into this. Well, I, of course, I started to write articles about the, uh, the medical side, because that's where my experience lies. Uh, and that's where I had access to, to books and, and papers and libraries, and I knew what to look for. Um, I've um, I've done certain procedures on uh, on bodies, and I, I knew um, I knew what was right and what was wrong, what I, what I thought was wrong. So I began to write about it. I really got interested in the wound patterns, particularly in John Connolly. Um, so I wrote quite a bit about that and presented on that uh, a couple of occasions in Dallas. Um, but really, what what piqued my interest was how did these panels come to this same conclusion every time that the autopsy was right when to me it was clearly wrong um, so i had this a very um, good opportunity here to um, think about it over the years and uh, i did a lot of research on the internet finding out uh, about people's backgrounds where they came from where they'd been to college uh, and then I, when i retired um, seems like uh, only yesterday so a couple of years ago now, uh, three years ago now, um, I finally had the time to really go to the library. And I live in Cambridge, so we have a, um, one of the best universities in the world. So we've got one of the best university art, uh, libraries here. I was able to get a reader's ticket and go there. And what I did was I looked up every scientific paper that any one of those doctors, doctors had written in an effort to see who were their co-authors because I knew that a co-author would have to work very closely together and therefore they would have a relationship and therefore they, what one of them said, the other would no doubt back up. And I found that a lot of these doctors had a relationship with Russell Fisher and of course Russell Fisher from the Clark panel. Um, so then I thought, well, you know, let's go back, let's go back to the start and think about 
um, if there were any relationships between the autopsy doctors and if there were any between the um, the doctors at um, the Aberdeen Proving Ground. But of course, that one was that's very tight. It, I, I wrote to them and I wrote to a couple of doctors there to try and find out more, but they just wouldn't engage with me. So um, I, I've only got what the uh, Warren Commission said about those guys. Um, but uh, what I really found out that was interesting um, that nobody's really asked me about was um, how inexperienced uh, Dr. Fink was, uh, Pierre Fink. Now, we always think of him and he's always portrayed as the forensic pathologist on the autops uh, the autopsy of JFK. But he was very inexperienced. He uh, told the Warren Commission that his his uh, he looked at or he'd performed 200 autopsies in Frankfurt in the late 1950s. Um, but he hadn't done that as a forensic pathologist. He was a hospital pathologist when he did that. And I was thinking about those 200 autopsies. Obviously, they were while he was in the U.S. Army. Who would have who would those autopsies been performed on and for what reasons? And if you think about it, how many firearms injuries would there have been in peacetime Europe in Frankfurt in those three years that he, he was there doing autopsies? I guess there were less than a hand, you know, a handful, three or four maybe, and most of those would have been self-inflicted. They would have been suicides. He would have autopsied uh, not just soldiers, but their families as well who died. And most of them would have died of disease or tra trauma that wasn't related to firearms. So I thought, well, you know, those 200 autopsies, that sounds good, but there was probably only four or five that were relevant. And of course, that was five years before the president um, died. He joined the a, um, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology and basically became a what I've called in the book a desk jockey, because all he did was review other people's autopsies. He really very rarely did one himself. And he didn't become board certified as a forensic pathologist until 1961, which is only two years before the autopsy on the president. So this guy who was always portrayed as being the forensic pathologist expert was not so expert. In addition, of course, he arrived at the autopsy late when the uh, body had been eviscerated or the organs had been taken out, the brain had been removed and the wounds had been altered. So what expertise he could have applied to the autopsy, it just wasn't possible for him. Yeah, the thing I do enjoy uh, about the book JFK Medical Betrayal is the background you give into all these many of the statements that people have made it's like really a color commentary of of you have to take this with a grain of salt because you give yeah. these points of view that although you know if someone wants to parrot the warren commission they they can just do that but if you look into it further you go well you can't say that for instance i'm this document is complete because the research shows that these guys begrudgingly signed it they didn't show up or they were there for I mean, I was surprised to learn how, how short some of these meetings were and, oh, and, and the, yeah. you know, the panels. And, and I had you know, talked to Cyril Weck many times and, you know, he's kind of a lone dissenter here. And you go, how can that be? How can all these other guys just pat each other on the back and say, yeah, we're going to go along with this? It's, well, I it's hope really... I've given you some indication of why they did that. Yeah. Let's get into the book then, because um, question would be, uh, was there one item that 
was a catalyst for you to say, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to write, a, not your articles, but I mean, write yeah. this book? Yeah, it was, it was the fact that Russell Fisher just seems so ubiquitous. Uh, and actually, while I was, just before I began to write the book, um, his, one of his granddaughters got in touch with me. Uh, she was also looking at her grandfather's career and she got access to this huge archive and she started sending me materials. I think she must have sent me a thousand pages of uh, stuff that Russell Fisher had done. Um, and I started to ask her questions, but I had to be very careful because uh, I'm critical of her, her father, not of his abilities, uh, grandfather rather, not of his abilities because he was a great forensic pathologist. He taught so many um, of the pathologists that uh, were around in the 70s and 80s and 90s had uh, gone through his facility. Uh, plus, he'd done some amazing research on, on many different areas, but particularly on what we call a cot death syndrome in the UK or SID, sudden infant death syndrome. Um, so he'd done a lot of great work. There was nothing wrong with him as a pathologist. It was his motivation for covering up the JFK assassination that was um, his negative, if you like. Uh, so it was, it was, I wanted to see just how, how many of the doctors in the panels had some kind of link with Russell Fisher. Uh, and it turns out that most of them did, except for Cyril Wecht. Yeah, very interesting. Good detective work. Thank you. Okay, so let's get into the book a little bit, because I, I don't mind spending time. I just hope we encourage people to purchase the book, you know, to, you know, yeah. to pay off your, your good work here. And, um, okay, so the two hospitals, Parkland and Bethesda, this is where a mystery lies for people who are unaware of it, that the body looks in one shape at Parkland, and then when everybody talks about what happened in Bethesda, they say, well, I mean, just the, to me, the poverty of these um, drawings by the artist Ida Docks and um, yeah. uh, the other, the, the, this is right, pathetic. Yeah. Why, if you have a photo of the victim there, why would you have somebody else just draw it and coach him how to draw it? No, you know, shade that mm -hmm. in, just, you know, and, and then, then the doctors rely on these drawings. Yes, of course, but the Rydberg drawings for the, um, yeah, right. the doctors used at the Warren Commission, yeah. Um, well, I mean, have you yeah, ever heard it, of that happening so in not. another case? <laughs> no, I, I never not. heard of it. Right. No. So, no. yeah. Uh, why don't you just at arm's length go over the differences between Parkland and Bethesda? Sure. Well, when he arrived at, at Parkland, we've got an, a, a team of emergency doctors trying to treat treat him and save his life. Um, noticed a very small hole in his throat, three to five millimeters. This was uh, Carrico, who was wheeling him into the trauma room one as he was, as he was looking. Had a quick feel over his back to make sure that there was no large sucking wound in his back, which would uh, indicate an exit wound, couldn't feel anything. Um, so then went on to just try and uh, get a tube into the, the president's throat to help him breathe. Of course, he'd noticed that there was a, a hole on the back of the president's head in his occipital parietal region um, about, you know, I think they say it's the size of an orange or an, a large egg. Um, but the most important thing to do, and this is what any emergency team do, is follow their ABCs, which is uh, stabilize airway, that's A, then control breathing, that's B, and then you look at circulation, which is blood loss and replacing fluids. So he was doing exactly the right thing to intubate the president. 
then when Perry arrived, you could see that the intubation through the mouth wasn't sealing properly. So he called for a tracheostomy tray so that he could put a, a tube into the president's throat to better control that airway. And it just happened that the hole, the bullet hole was in the right place that he would normally make an incision. And so all he needed to do was extend that, um, just uh, extend the hole in the skin and in the trachea, separate the, the muscles out, find the trachea, make a little incision there to extend the ragged hole that was there and then slide a, a tracheostomy tube in. And once they'd done that, they could connect it to an anesthesiology machine or an anesthetics machine to control his breathing. And that's when they, um, the team turned to controlling the, the blood loss. Um, it, I, I make it sound as if you know one thing was done and then the next thing was done. But of course, there were several doctors in there who could do all of these things in parallel. So they were putting lines in as uh, Perry was doing the tracheostomy. And then... Uh, they brought the most senior guy in to have a look at the, the head wound. You know, Kemp Clark is a, neuro, um, a professor of neurology. And he, he knows everything about head wounds and brain wounds. And he just shook his head and said, you know, the guy's no, he's not going to survive this. I can see major damage to both the upper part of the brain, the cerebellum, and the lower part of the brain. Sorry, the cerebrum upper and the lower part, the cerebellum and he's not going to survive, and he called his called him dead at, I think it was one o'clock. So in Parkland, the only wounds that they really saw were this small wound in the throat and a larger wound in the back of the head, and a lot of their conjecture was about one, one wound, one bullet wound going into the throat and out the back of the head. So then, of course, we know about the the terrible debacle of the the body being taken away to to Washington for its autopsy when it really should have been autopsied in Dallas by Earl Rose. Um, but then it gets to um, it gets to Washington, and, and this is this is where things really start to um, get strange because the body should have gone to the best hospital in the region for gunshot wounds, um, for autopsying gunshot wounds and for treating gunshot wounds, which would have been the Army Hospital at Walter Reed. Because, of course, they saw thousands of gunshot wounds. Uh, army guys are forever being shot in conflict. And it was only a few years since the end of the Second World War. And there'd been the Korean War. And there'd been some action in Vietnam as well, of course. So they'd seen lots of gunshot wounds and was the ideal place to take him. But no, he was taken to a very secondary uh, hospital, Beth Bethesda. And I won't go into the reasons that were given, but... When he turns up at the Bethesda mortuary, then the two people who are asked to do the autopsy, ordered to do the autopsy, are the most senior people, uh, Humes and Boswell, but they're not the best people by far. Neither of them were uh, forensic pathologists, of course, and neither of them had done an autopsy for, for years. Certainly Humes wouldn't have done. Um, so they weren't the best people. And I believe they, if they'd been allowed to, they would have ordered their best people to do it and not done it themselves. The reason that they were ordered to do it, I believe, is because they could be easily controlled. They were um, they were people who were obviously been in the, the armed forces for a long time, used to taking orders and had the biggest pension pot to lose. So I think they were just ordered to do the autopsy, ordered to do their best. So the autopsy um, 
they were able to turn the body in any which direction they wanted to. Uh, and they found uh, what they believe was a, a bullet hole in the president's back. Um, and the large hole in his head was now described as being occipital parietal temporal. So it had moved from the back of the head round to more on the side and the top of the head. And they believed that they could see a small entrance wound in the back of the head. Uh, they totally missed the entrance, uh, well, I believe is an entrance wound in the throat, um, noting only a tracheostomy. So now this is a, we have a whole new, a whole different set of wounds and the, um, they were at a loss to explain it because they couldn't find any bullets in the body or fragments or very small fragments in the head, but they couldn't find out where the, the bullet had gone in the back. Um, so they, Humes pushed his finger in and they tried probing, but it didn't go, go far. Uh, it certainly didn't go through the body and they were just at a loss about where that bullet had gone. And it was only when um, Humes contacted the Dallas hospital and spoke to um, Perry that he, he found out that there'd actually been a, a wound in the throat. And then in, instead of saying, well, uh, he must have been shot from the front as well. Instead, he goes, oh, well, um, a light bulb moment. That must have been the exit for the entrance in the back. Um, but he, it was totally without any proof. The body was long gone. He'd not dissected the track because it didn't go anywhere, according to his probes. Uh, he certainly not linked the two. And he'd, he'd just guessed. It was a guess. So we, we're now left with two sets of conflicting wounds, one from the Parkland emergency doctors and one from Bethesda um, inexperienced autopsy personnel. It's a mess. Right. But I think uh, what interests me is further in the book when you go through the different panels where these doctors are asked to say, well, exactly what did you see? Exactly what do you remember? And then um, there's just contrary statements. Uh, it, it's just so many of them that you you have a hard time believing that this was done by a respectable people that um, that they took this seriously. And, yeah, that's right. uh, and, and with the, the House Select Committee and assassinations, it's surprising then to learn how many people wanted to go along with the Warren Commission report and just rubber stamp it. When you thought, oh, finally, you know, the HSCA, we're going to find out something, you know, they're going to get to the bottom of this. And, they did not at all. No, and, and really the, the fix was in much earlier than that because um, the Clark panel was really the start of all this when um, Clark, Ramsey Clark in the, in the late 60s decided that he needed to have something in his pocket. He needed to have a report in his pocket that would head off anybody really seriously taking a look at the autopsy materials in the archives. And so he... He put this panel together to review the materials. Uh, and remember, none of these panels, none of them ever looked at the or asked the uh, people in Dallas what they thought. They all only reviewed the autopsy evidence, including the HSCA. So they, they were at a, a kind of a bias already. They already was were only looking at one end of this equation. Um, but the Clark panel was uh, a kind of a debacle from the start that um, a pretend letter was produced, which was supposed to have been written by Boswell, but was obviously produced by Clark himself. 
Uh, and there are numerous problems with that letter, which I go into in the book, um, which formed the panel. And then this kind of charade of using academics to choose the panelists. I ask in the book, who, who decided how many doctors were needed on that panel and who decided who was the right person to nominate those doctors? And what we end up is this is kind of, um, what do they call it? It's a, a an appeal to authority where you use academics to say, well, this guy is going to be the best guy on the panel. So I went after them and I had a look at these these people who are supposed to nominate panelists, they're all, or they're mostly presidents of uh, big universities in the States, or they're, um, for instance, Wallace Sterling, who was the president of Stanford. Um, he nominated a pathologist, William Carnes. Now, there's no, there's, Carnes did spend some time at Stanford. They might have, their, their paths might have cost, crossed, but they were so different. Um, so I thought, well, it's unlikely that they knew each other, but let's have a look. Let's have a look in Wallace Sterling, Sterling's papers and, and see whether there's ever any contact between Sterling and Clark, who would presumably have asked him to nominate somebody, and or anybody else in the, DO, the Department of Justice, or anything between Sterling and Carnes, because he would have had to write to Carnes and say, would you be willing to go on this panel? There would have been some kind of exchange between them. But there was nothing, no letter, no contact between Sterling, Carnes or Clark or anybody in the Department of Justice. So now I'm beginning to think, well, you know, this is this just looks completely wrong. Let's have a look at the next guy, John Hanna, president of Michigan State University, who was supposed to have nominated Alan Moritz, uh, um, an excellent forensic pathologist. But their paths never crossed, never crossed. Um, and I searched his archive again. Hannah had no contact with Ramsey Clark, no letters from the Department of Justice and certainly no exchange with Alan Moritz. So I, I'm already now I'm thinking, hey, four of the four, uh, two of the four doctors that were nominated were nominated by people who never spoke to them and never sent them a letter. Um, I tried to go after Lincoln Gordon who was the president of Johns Hopkins, who nominated a radiologist, Russell Morgan, um, but I couldn't get to his archive. And remember, I was writing this a couple of years ago during all the COVID lockdown, and it was difficult to get people in the archives to um, to look. And uh, I have to say, those archivists who did look and were, were fantastic. They were, and you should be very proud of your American archivists. They're very good. And I know you're Canadian, but a lot of people listening to this will be uh, Americans. Um, and I couldn't, similarly for Oscar Hunter, who was the president of the College of American Pathologists, I couldn't look in his archive to check whether there was any letters between him and Russell Fisher. But uh, I'm already thinking, you know, two out of four, it looks like these guys never nominated anybody. And Clark just asked them if he could use their names as an authority here. I think that Russell Fisher was nominated or appointed, if you like, by Ramsey Clark, who probably knew him because he was um, the nearest thing to a, a government forensic pathologist you could find, really. He worked in Baltimore. He obviously knew a lot of the politicians um, and he was totally funded by the government in one way or another. And it makes sense that Fisher chose the panel. This was the next step. Does it make sense that Fisher chose Carnes? Yes, it does, because 
he knew him from John Hopkins. Does it make sense that he knew the radiologist Morgan? Again, yes, they were at John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins together. And does it make sense that he chose um, Alan Moritz? Absolutely, Alan Moritz was his professor at Harvard. So these three people had a very solid, strong link to Fisher and none to the other guys. So that was a bit of a bingo moment, if you like. Very good detective work because now you're, you're starting to see how they put their own people in for a predetermined conclusion. Exactly. Uh, we're going to have our guys that I know I can count on to go along. You know, I mean, I had a, a you know, um, I don't know how to say it, but a, a dislike of Blakey because I knew that when they put him in, he was just going to go with organized crime, did it? Yeah. And in spite of the evidence, and we're not even going to look there, and um, we'll send other people on wild goose chases. But meanwhile, let's start writing the report, you know, yeah. uh, never mind what, you know, going through the facts. And in this case, as you develop them, the facts do not support the conclusion. And it's quite shocking for someone new to the case to, to say, how can this just keep snowballing like this? Till at the very end, they say, yeah, a lone assassin. And yet, um, the medical evidence is just uh, unbelievable. It's not a strong enough word. I'm searching for something else, you know. <laughs> yeah, I got you. But um, see, Fisher, he was, Fisher was very smart. He he supported as much of the autopsy report as he could and, and he changed the one bit that he, he felt would aid the problems that the American government was having with the medical evidence and that was with the, the, the shot to the head at the back and he moved the wound up and this was a very clever thing for him to do because he could base it on one poor photograph which is not very scientific but it helped the government out in many ways because by moving the head wound up it made a shot from above and behind more likely it also um, made it more likely that uh, the, the line of metal in the x-rays was then closer to the entry wound and it made it that the cerebellum could be intact which is what the autopsy report said so a higher wound would not have injured the cerebellum so he did something very useful for the government. And of course, as I've said before, he was he was government paid. So he knew which side his bread was buttered and he had to he had to come up with something for them. And that's what he did. It, and then we, we come to the next panel, the Rockefeller panel in the middle of the, the 70s. Well, um, I find out that it's it's got five doctors on it. And of the five, two of them were military. Um, Robert. McMeekin was a friend of Fink's, so he's not likely to go against the autopsy report. Alfred Olivier um, was one of the military testers at the Aberdeen Proving Ground. He'd already tested for the Warren Commission and for CBS television. He was not going to go back on what he'd said, which supported the autopsy report. And then we find three, the, the remaining three are all associated with Fisher. Richard Lindenberg worked with Fisher. He was the a neuropathologist who worked in Fisher's facilities, uh, Werner Spitz, who was a co-author with Fisher on a book, and uh, Fred Hodges, uh, again, shared Fisher's facilities. Uh, and what's more was um, a subordinate to Morgan who was on the Clark panel. So none of those five doctors were ever going to say anything against what uh, the Clark panel under Fisher had said. 
Uh, and I go into a lot more detail in the book, of course, on, on each of those doctors. Uh, and then we come to the HSCA. I'm going to pause there for a minute. Yeah, sure. Well, I was going to say that the, the chapters on the Clark panel and the Rockefeller Commission are what people uh, will find most interesting because you've done uh, uh, so much detective work and, and so much commentary about what is really going on. Uh, you know, holding the the final report and the conclusions one thing, and then you see just what went into that, and it, it's another. You know, you shake your head. You go, well, like the movie says, how can they call white is black and black is white? You know, how can they just rubber stamp this? Um, and well, I I'm repeating myself now. So <laughs> yes, the House Select Committee and Assassinations. It's another chapter, and. Um, this is from 1977, 78, right? Yeah, right. And That's some it. good meaning people tried to get this going. I think Mark Lane was spearheading it. And then, um, you know, the first head of it was unceremoniously asked to, to leave. Um, you spent some time, it sounds like, either writing or talking to uh, Tannenbaum, who, yeah. um, oh, well, sure, why don't you give me an overview of your of the House Select Committee and Assassinations and Week. Sure, yeah. Let me tell you how it all came about. Of course, the, I'm doing it chronologically. So the next step was to write about the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And I'd always kind of steered away from it because it's so complex. that there's. I was familiar with the Warren Commission, but I also had the whole set of the HSCA report. And so I started to read them. I uh, read the medical evidence and I started cross-referencing um, uh, parts of them to each other. Um, and then I thought, well, I, you know, I really I really need to talk to um, Cyril Wecht. Um, so I got in contact with Ben and I said, you know, do you, do you think your dad would, would um, swap emails with me? And he said, hey, call him. Give him a call. Here's his number. I thought that was unbelievable. So, um, so I did. I, I I gave Cyril Wecht a call and uh, he, he was very pleasant with me and he was quite guarded at first. Um, but after a, about half a dozen calls, we were on first name terms, which was which was great. And he gave me uh, his his take on things. But he also gave me contacts with um, Bob Tannenbaum and Michael Barden. And um, I think it was Henry Lee he gave me contact with as well. And so I. I then started to phone these people and swap emails with them, and I began to to build a picture. Um, so uh, Robert Tannenbaum told me that uh, you know he was the deputy chief counsel. He was the second one. That he, he um, was he the second one? Uh, I you know it's hellish complex, but um, people can look this up. He, he chose uh, Michael Barden because he knew him from New York, and he specifically told me that he chose Cyril Wecht because he knew that. Um, Cyril was an opponent of the Warren Commission and he wanted to have people who were not just yes men on the panel. So we have those two people already, Michael Barden, Cyril Wecht, and they're both excellent forensic pathologists, of course. Barden then, I believe, chose the next two people to be invited onto the panel. And he chose them because he'd just written a chapter in a book called the Forensic Pathology Handbook. And the two editors of that book were Russell Fisher and Charles Petty. So Barden invited them both to come onto the panel. Uh, Russell Fisher had already been on a panel and he wisely said no. 
But Charles Petty was a huge fan of Russell Fisher, um, immediately said yes, he wanted to be on the panel. And um, Barden also chose uh, Spitz, who'd been on a previous panel, but thought he would come onto this one as well. Um, so we've already, we're already building a panel here with Charles Petty, who's a big fan of Fisher, and Spitz, who'd uh, been on a panel already and um, was also involved with, oh, excuse me, was also involved with um, a co-author with Fisher on a book. So we've got two people now who are Fisher men. <laughs> Sorry about the pun. Uh, and it was then, I think, Petty and Barden together who chose another group of doctors who had contributed to a, another book. There was a, a huge book being written at the time. It was published in 1980, Modern Legal Medicine um, and Forensic Psychiatry. Uh, you can look this up in the book. But um, it wasn't published till 1980. But of course, you have to start work on these books years before they get published. Um, and they would have been working on it in 1977 and 1978 to put a huge book like that together takes years. I know because it took me two years to get mine published and mine's only a 250 page book. And this is more like a 1050 page book. And those four doctors, uh, John Cohen, James Weston, uh, Joseph Davis, Earl Rose, had all contributed to that book. So they were an easy choice for Petty to make. He knew them, he'd worked with them, he could rely on them to be um, supportive of him. And he was supportive of Fisher. Uh, and, and that only leaves one guy uh, left who I think Petty also chose um, because um, he'd worked on the forensic handbook, which was George Lokuvam, the guy who famously said, uh, I don't believe this be uh, belongs in the damn record when uh, they were talking with Humes and Boswell uh, about various wounds. So we have a, a bunch of doctors now, all apart from Cyril Wecht, who seem to support the government. Um, and by the way, even Cyril Wecht went through Russell Fisher's facility. He just never got very friendly with him, friendly enough to write scientific papers with him or co-author books with him. Uh, all the others did. Pretty much all the others did. And I've um, presented a couple of times a table, which I, I can email to you, um, Len. It's a table of all the interconnectedness of these doctors, which you might be able to put a a link to on your on your website well so I, I found it interesting you know I remember the quote in your book where you I think you said that there's some laughter after that but they oh. said you know this this does this should not go in the record and that's right it's it's like an uncomfortable uh, fact like well ha, you know how are we gonna explain this mm. well okay let's just leave it out right and then you know uh, laughter in the room right yeah, you know, listening listening to those tapes, and I listened to all of the all of the medical um, tapes that they were from the HSA, and they go on for hours and hours and hours. Um, but they are they do reveal quite a lot, and I thought that was very interesting that there was laughter after that comment. Uh, never seen any any mention of it before, uh, because most people I think just read the testimony, they don't listen to it. Of course they don't. They don't have the time. Quite right. Uh, so the HSCA got together and began to review the evidence. But like you said earlier, Len, they didn't spend much time doing it. There was hardly any time spent on looking at the evidence. In fact, it, it probably amounted to less than a week that they actually spent. And, and none of that time together 
and they only looked at the evidence in the archives which supports the government theory and of course is the autopsy evidence and then they all went their separate ways and two doctors were assigned to produce drafts uh, which they swapped amongst each other uh, and who, who knew this because uh, Cyril told me he never received a single draft of it and yet I was able to find five drafts one after another where the wording was changed subtly each time to either further support the single bullet theory or to um, demolish the theory that there was more than one headshot. Uh, and I found numerous things in those drafts which uh, were pretty eye-opening about them changing their minds or rewriting sections uh, to support the government rather than uh, raise any questions. Um, and then of course they, they published their report um, and Cyril was given time to be a dissenting voice, um, which is very interesting as well. And um, he did a very good job and stood up to those people while maintaining a friendship, particularly with Martin Michael Barden. Seems uncanny, doesn't it? Um, but I, I thought you know, it, it's actually I cannot explain it. I it's just one of those things. I guess he's a bigger man than me, you know. Yeah, I, I just yeah. can't believe how Baden can do, say all that, and yet Cyril's able to find the good side of him, the other quality as well. But, yeah, the well, disservice that Baden side. has done, you know, and all these people parroting the Warren Commission and by omission, obfuscating, just... It's like trying to do some kind of magic show to, to, well, what if we don't show the photos? What if we just have drawings, an artist representation, a recreation, right? And yeah, then exactly. and then when you finally get to x-rays or something, you go, well, this can't, this can't be real. And, and I, like, I like in your book where there's some discussion on how people are saying, matter of factly, that there's nothing wrong with these negatives or x-rays. There's no retouching. We've looked at the surfaces of them. And yet you say, well, all you have to do is touch up another X-ray and then take a picture of that and then yeah. put that film there. And then, of course, there's no um, cover. But e even when the guy said, well, this isn't even the same film that I took. So these can't be the real photos. Uh, bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the more I look at it, the, the more I, I find these anomalies, if you like. And certainly the the fact that there were so few x-rays in evidence when there should be many, many more. It's really simple to, to figure out that there should be probably twice as many because w we all remember that when Fink arrived, um, he asked for full body x-rays to be taken. Well, half of those are not in evidence. We've got no, no photographs, uh, uh, sorry, the x-rays of the hands or the feet or the lower, lower legs or, the, or their lower arms. Uh, and we know that the Secret Service asked for all the x-rays to be repeated because the doctors couldn't find any, any bullets in the body. So where are those repeats? You know, there should be two, at least two exposures of every every view, and there's just not. There's only one. There's only 14 of them. Uh, and you'll remember from my book, I reckon there should be at least double that number, if not more. Well, I'm. correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in, in the book you were mentioning what the... the serial numbers and there was a space of 11 missing yeah right you know so yeah yeah if you just count you know like you know number 29 20 30 31 and then 44 45 you know, you go where are these 11 yeah exactly and there's a whole a whole another issue with the x-rays in that the 
forensic pathology panel, the HSCA, asked for, I think it was eight to be enhanced, and yet we only have two. Those two of the, the skull, the AP and the lateral skull x-rays. Um, so where are the others? They were certainly done. Uh, and the only reason you wouldn't put them in evidence is they don't show what you're, sh what you're purporting that they do. So they've been buried. I, I, I have no idea where they are. They should be at the National Archives, but nobody's ever mentioned finding other enhanced x-rays. Well, speaking of enhancements, I think in, in one of the chapters, you go into the detail how um, x-rays of teeth were just superimposed. I mean, it was so, it was obvious. Yeah. Do you want to go into yeah. that just a bit? Yeah, of course. That's in the the HSCA volumes. You can go and look it up yourself. That the forensic odontologist was trying to show that the the x-rays were authentic because of the dentition in them. And he could show that the, the teeth were the same in the x-rays prior to JFK's death and the autopsy x-rays. But the x-rays that were taken at the autopsy are not uh, dental x-rays. They would have shot from one side of the head. So if you think of the x-ray beam shining through your jaw, it will have the teeth on the right side superimposed on the teeth on the left side. And, and so they, they're all jumbled together. And it, it's, it's not possible from the pictures that were shown to authenticate the x-rays in that way. It's, uh, well, I mean, you can see the picture in the HSCA, and I think it's reproduced in my book. So you can see that uh, we can't do it for ourselves. That's the point. We have to just take his word for it. Not good enough. What are some other things in the House Select Committee and assassinations uh, when you investigate that that shocked you or are just... Uh, uh, surprising I, I was kind of surprised that there was a docs drawing that didn't appear in the HSC, hsca volumes there was an extra drawing that wasn't used um and i think it's because it it shows massive wounding to the head which is more supportive of a second head wound and i think they just left that out for that reason uh, i was surprised to find that a whole appendix that was dedicated to the um, the work that John Nichols, another doctor, had done uh, firing weapons and looking at patterns of injury. That whole appendix was dropped. Uh, I couldn't find a copy of it. It was referred to in one of the earlier drafts. It was listed as being in the contents, but I didn't have it. Um, and I, I asked Cyril Wecht about that, and he said, uh, unfortunately, Dr. Nichols has been dead for many years, but he, he would not have supported the uh, Warren Commission findings. And, and rather than that, of course, they have all this nonsense from uh, John Latimer, Professor Latimer in there, um, and all, all of his shootings, which, um, although on, on the surface they appear to support the, the Warren Commission and the single bullet theory, absolutely do not when you look at them in any detail. I, I'm certainly not the first person to, to say that, but um, I met John Latimer, I was lucky to meet him in Philadelphia. I liked him very much as a person. He was very warm and, and welcoming um, and I have, had a correspondence with him. Uh, but I finally got him to admit that some of the things that he said in his book about that, that series of tests were, were not really as relevant as uh, other tests might have been. For instance, the, the weight of the metal left in John Connolly's wrist is much more important than the number of pieces that were left. 
Um, and I believe, of course, there were there was a lot more metal left in Connolly's body than there was missing from the the single bullet. And if you look at the weights, uh, I think I can back that up. Well, it's already when you see the the pieces, you just I mean, I can't believe anybody goes along with Commission Exhibits three ninety nine. You just think like. I guess there yeah. are some really stupid people out there. There are some people <laughs> who believe in the flat earth or whatever. And, yeah. you you know, you just think this one bullet did all that and then tumbling. And then it just, it's like, well, you'll believe anything. And I think it's, you know, it's time to, to call them out, you know. Yeah. And I hope that's what I've done, really. Um, most of these pathologists, and my father said to me, um, now, Russell, you, you, um, you're defaming quite a lot of these very eminent doctors, you know, aren't you worried about that? And I said, well, you know, most of them aren't with us anymore, so they're not going to be uh, able to sue me. But, um, hey, bring it on, because they're not likely to sue me, because they know this is just wrong. And if a, a physiologist sitting at his desk in, in Cambridge can prove that it's not, it's not correct, then um, I'm sure uh, we could do so in court. Um, and, and, of course, none of them have written to me, none of them contacted me. They won't. Oh, yeah. Right. So let's confident. have a deposition and go through uh, what you say happened. Yeah. It's a different yeah. world now. And I think people are a lot more distrusting of the government, uh, of a commission. And yet, um, if you just bulldoze it down with, uh, uh, you know, I hate to say fake news because that sounds like what uh, Trump was parroting. But there's truth to that. I mean, they just bulldoze a 9-11 commission through and they don't even talk about Building 7. And they just say, yeah. well, everyone go back to sleep. And by the way, we're going off to Afghanistan now. And now we're going into Iraq. And, we, you know, and then people go, oh, yeah, let's get them guys. And they, you never think, mm. you know, same. Well, I won't get off topic. Sorry. But <laughs> you, you wonder, like, how did people put out the Warren Commission and have everybody buy it? Because Alan Dulles said, look, it, just print it all. Don't index it. People don't read. And, and how will they yeah. know? It's just here it is, 26 volumes. Go through it if you want. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot It's a lot to go through. And even the medical evidence is, is quite a lot in there. Um, and to cross-reference and to find it is hard enough, you know, because it's not uh, – I've banged on about this quite a few years ago that the evidence is not chronologically listed, so not in – the order in which the doctors were gave their testimony. It's not alphabetical. Um, the earlier evidence is given in a later volume. It's a complete mess to try and put together. So um, they, somebody just threw that up in the air and thought, well, this part can go in this volume and this part can go in another one. No, there was no right. But you logic mentioned Latimer. It. I mean, oh, I have strong language <laughs> for him and, and Blakey. And, and although people are saying, look at, at least, you know, Professor Blakey has said, I was in error. They told me that, that they were giving me the straight goods here, and uh, I didn't realize it, but that they had George Joannides, the, the guy in charge of everything, yeah. uh, blocking us at every turn, and I was wrong about that. I mean, that's just a small token of the embarrassment these guys should feel. But you, you said you spoke to Latimer, and he goes, well, maybe I was wrong about this or you know, wrong about that, but these guys don't seem to have an embarrassment to it. Oh, no, and, he was and, utterly committed to the single bullet theory, utterly committed, and yeah. it didn't matter. Yeah, how, to the single how... bullet theory. I mean, you tell a child that, and they will laugh. <laughs> I know, 
I know. So it's almost like a religious cult that they believe in spite of the facts. They just believe. I've long tried to think what was what was John Latimer's motivation for doing all that work and writing all those papers and and support and supporting all those government investigations. And I can't I can't really figure it out. The only, the only thing I um, I've thought about is that he was a collector of uh, objects. You, you probably know this. He he collected everything from uh, American uh, natives. Um, artifacts right through to Nazi artifacts that he picked up during the war and he picked up a lot of assassination artifacts both from the uh, Lincoln assassination and from the Kennedy assassination and uh, he had dozens of them in his collection and and I just think this was another it was part of the fascination with him to get to see those those pieces of evidence in the archives and be one of the first to be able to look at them and handle them and I think it was his fascination with the objects rather than his commitment to the uh, government theory and of course his commitment to the government theory gave him access to those objects and that's the only thing I could think of I, I wish at the time I'd asked him I did ask him I, th- I, I asked him in a letter uh, why did you do it and he said because I had the facilities and I was interested um, that's not really his true motivation anyway I, I guess the same can be said for me, you know, why did you write the book? Because I was interested and I had the time, I guess. Well, if it wasn't such a grave situation, you know, like if, if someone said, oh, we're going to investigate uh, what caused the extinction of dinosaurs or something, or or how did they really build the pyramids? You go, okay, well, let's investigate that. And it doesn't matter. But in it to me, in this case, though, that when you kill such a president that was trying to change the world to be a better place, and then you get away with this facade of, a, of an investigation and then the fraud of, of people going along with it. I mean, you think of, well, what, what, you know, and then J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI building and that, and you think, what a fraud of a man. And the whole country is, is based on a lie and they just propagate each up. And as long as some guy's getting paid, you know, it's just... Uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, it, a real education on how crooked things are where you just wouldn't yes. believe they would go along with it. Yeah, there was a lot of reputations and pensions to be defended. And that's why they went along with it. And that's one of the reasons in the book that I suggest that actually that the, U- the United States should have lifted their heads a bit higher to look at where else they could have found forensic pathologists to actually do an independent review who weren't being paid by Uncle Sam, who didn't have pensions that were relying on them saying the right things about the government. And of course, there's thousands of such forensic pathologists. There's a, there are people in Australia and India and Canada. Oh, right. Yeah, I think in your book, you say at the time there was maybe only 30, right, in 1963 yeah. or something. But, yeah, but regardless, I, I'm just saying that, you know, the ramifications of letting this go on for 60 years just shows that they're still fighting they're clinging to this that if people wake up they will realize that that we've lied to them about everything we're lying to and they might say well we're lying to you about what's going on in the ukraine now and you need a hundred billion dollars and we're gonna you know start the draft or we're gonna start world war three and uh the fraud of it and and i think john kennedy was 
probably the last guy that was trying to make the world a better place. You know, not only yeah, America, right. but the world. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing that burns, isn't it? That we've been lied to. Um, and I guess that ultimately is the reason for writing a book showing how we were lied to. Is, uh, to and, and every them. time that there is a, a panel where you say, okay, we're going to, the government will investigate itself. And then you, you know, well, they had it right. You know, oh, yeah, there was a few problems. One of them said, so there was two people shooting at John Kennedy. Lee Oswald did it that day. <laughs> and, and somebody else just happened to fire a shot. And, and they got that on the acoustical evidence. But I think the New York Times had said that, that to that effect. So what? Yeah. You know, like uh, the poverty of that just. Yeah. Um, so now um, we get to the Assassinations Records and Review Board. And once again, I thought, oh, finally, we're going to dig it. And then when you hear from um, Doug Horn, where he says, did you know that many of the top people were Warren Commission supporters? Your jaw drops again. No, this is why every time they, yeah. they fund something, they allocate, and then they cut the funding, and then they, you know, chop the legs out from people and then you're just left with um, I mean because even in 1978 they said although we were unable to prove uh, conspiracy there was probably you know probable yeah, enough probable. evidence there but we were just unable to prove it yeah. so of course the, the ARB panel would were there was not one of them was a skeptic they were all the government proved that uh, Lee Alvey Oswald did it but when you look at the medical evidence it, it's slightly different so the the A R R B the A A R B Assassination Records Review Bureau A R R B they um, they asked Vince DeMaio and as, who was a forensic pathologist and Henry Lee who's a a famous uh, forensics expert to have a look at the evidence and say whether they thought it was worth convening another panel to look at all, all the evidence again but really they mean look at the autopsy evidence because that's all they sent to. Vince DeMaio and Henry Lee, um, and to give them their, their due, uh, at, at the time Vince DeMaio was very much a, a government supporter, uh, Oswald Diddick sort of guy, but he's, I've exchanged some emails with him more, more recently and he's given up, he doesn't think the SBT, single bullet theory, is, uh, is viable anymore. So even he's come around to that. And Henry Lee um, was much more balanced and fairer on the evidence and said that uh, you know, there was a lot that was seemed to be wrong here. But both of them believed that the only thing that would really solve the case would be an exhumation of the body. And they both knew that that wasn't going to happen. So they didn't believe that a, a forensic pathology panel by the ARRB would, would be worth doing. What the ARRB did do was they asked some um, other experts, not forensic pathologists necessary to look at the evidence, um, and those three people, um, Douglas Ubalaka and John Fitzpatrick and Robert Kirshner, they came up with a full counter set of evidence that the x-rays x-rays were wrong um, and all kinds of things which uh, I list in my book and I talk about in my book about uh, what was wrong in the evidence. So even at the ARRB, we did have more evidence being produced that cast a shadow on the government case. The RRB has been a nightmare, I think, because all, all they've done is added to the mountains of millions of documents that 
people could spend lifetimes looking at and not come up with anything because is there any assassination researcher who believes that there's going to be a uh, a file in there that finally cracks the case because I, I don't believe there is uh, any of those files went a long time ago so it's a waste of time well i kind of like the the fact that uh tucker carlson tucker carlson on fox news his headline was the cia killed john f kennedy and then he went into he said well look what other conclusion can you come up with when they're hiding holding back documents 60 years later of course they did it and uh that was a breath of fresh air. Yes, it and was. Now, that I was a real surprise. Yeah, and I don't even really like him. In fact, I had a strong dislike of him years ago, but I don't know if I'm changing or he's changing or what, but I mean... Uh, um, How has that resonated, though? Has it really made a difference? No, but for a couple of days it was. You know, at oh, least yeah. it was better than nothing. I agree. Yeah. yeah and, absolutely. Uh, we... It, I, it may be too late to turn this around now. It, you know, the, most of the witnesses are dead. Most well, here's, of the, here's the thing, though. For anyone interested, a student of history, your book really adds to this because it gives a real context to a lot of these Clark Panel, Rockefeller, uh, HSCA, right? Assassination Records and you yeah. Review. And, of course, we have Doug Horn, to thank for his revelations about how he was probably the only guy really well i shouldn't say that but he he was an honestly trying to get what is the true information here you know regardless of who yeah. did it he nobody was happy with the medical evidence and you can't say it's accidental i mean everything has been it's again a better word than obfuscate but just uh, doctored to support a conclusion when the evidence didn't fit that and so like you say we're going to leave that out of the report because if it, if, you know, the public ever found that out. Yeah. yeah, Doug did a great job, didn't he? Thank goodness he wrote those five volumes, difficult as they are to get through because, you know, <laughs> there's only one or two chapters in each volume and there's no index. Right, but he's, but, been, on, he, he's been on Black Op Radio to talk about it and his various interviews and on YouTube you can find him. So he has yeah. spoken about it and um, among other topics. But the, oh, yeah. the thing I found of interest was just that I never dreamed so many people at the top, like at the HSCA or the AARB, were really hardcore pro uh, died in the World Warren Commission supporters. I mean, that should never have happened. Even if you say a board should be 50-50, we'll have some pro and some con and let's duke it out in debate, you know? Yeah, because the board only looked at very few documents that were then accepted into the archives. The the vast majority, over 90% of the documents that got put into the archives were never seen by the board. They couldn't possibly have read them all. They, they saw a, a small percentage of them. The ones that the, um, the security services, the FBI, the CIA wanted to withhold and they had to make a judgment on. Those were the ones they saw and read. Thousands, millions of others went in without being looked at by anybody. Yeah, certainly nobody critical. And I, I thank you for um, mentioning that I tried to put things in context in the book because uh, one of the, the tricky things that I had when I was writing it is because I wanted to write a book that was accessible to anybody that was interested in that era of history, if you like. Um, 
So I had to write it at the level that they would understand it and I had to guide them through the evidence and the times and, and start kind of basic level with them. But I also wanted to satisfy the interest that JFK researchers uh, and there's some people who go you know, right into the detail. I wanted to satisfy their need for information too. Um, and I've been very lucky to have uh, uh, Jim Eugenio to say nice things about the book and review the book. It was great. Uh, I thank him very much. And Gary Aguilar, has, uh, he's, he's got five copies of the book, so I thank him too. Uh, well, Cyril what, I, what I meant earlier, yeah, was that your book offers a context that is like a color commentary. So you go through what they say in some report and then you cut in and say, but look, what they mean by that is, and then you I expose that or reveal the fallacy of what they're saying there by offering the facts. So although somebody writes in a report, you know, of course, this was an exit wound. It, you know, it it just, uh, you know, that that's what I enjoyed about the book. This, this um, and I guess the best word for it is context, that when somebody is presenting an argument that you actually are right there to correct it or let the reader know that this guy's lying through his teeth right now. This is not what happened. And, yeah, thank uh, you, Len. That's, the, that's very kind of you to say that. Well, I'm just making that observation. And and um, because I, I was thinking about this ahead of time, I don't know if color commentator is a good word to describe it because who wants to hear that? But, you know, when that's some, you know, well, look, Bobby, what that guy just did there, he did a trick play and they didn't know this. And, you know, that's what I mean by uh, some of the things that you brought up. And, for instance... I know the topic very well. It's, it's sometimes, uh, you know, a little too well where I, I'll get into another book and I go, you know, this is about the 20th time I've heard this. So um, I know the topic, but it's always an enjoyable surprise when you go, geez, I, I didn't know the background to these guys. And it's, a, it's at all an incestuous network of uh, patting each other on the back. And there must be government grants behind this because they just keep going along with it. And another thing I did wanted to bring up, it, it seems that that um, these guys volunteered for some of these positions and there was very little money involved. It was like, you know, is this a career building step that they're taking here? Because it wasn't for the money. No, it certainly wasn't for the money. But but then they didn't spend very long on it either. You know, they spent a few days, at, at the most five days looking at it, most of these panels. Um, and very often it was at weekends when they wouldn't have been uh, earning a fee anyway. But uh, some of them did get paid. I found receipts from the HSCA. But panel. I think you said $100 a day or $60 yeah. per diem for food or something. Which would have so been it, way less than they could have commanded. Yeah. But just the fact that they all seem to have to travel as well. So yeah. um, it wasn't, it wasn't a big payday, I, I guess I was getting at. Like, oh, we hit the gold mine. I'm on this committee. It's more like... Yeah, you're you're going to get minimum wage, and yeah. then to find out that things have been slashed and cut back, and I think but with Dan Hardway and uh, Dan Dan Hardway uh, uh, said that they weren't even allowed to have long distance phone calls after that. They would have to call on their own dime if they wanted to call people. <laughs> something yeah. to that effect. Don't quote me on it, but it was something like that. You know, it's like well, it's arguments oh, about who had the biggest office. Oh yeah. God! But that's another thing that you know you find it that. Um, Lopez, Eddie Lopez and Dan Hardway, they were two people that were honestly trying to find out what happened. 
and uh, they were shut down at so many avenues and that they wanted to know what they were working on so they could preemptively doctor records or just make sure that they weren't around. I mean, it's just the opposite of what an investigation should be. Yeah, of course, that's why Tannenbaum left as well, isn't it? Because, you know, he wanted to choose his own team. He could have. He wanted the team to be as large as necessary. He wanted to spend as long as he needed. Well, I I would say further that Richard Sprague, the original guy, he he wanted uh, all the records of CIA people. He wanted yeah. their holiday records. He wanted to know where they were. Don't just tell me they're on holiday. You know, were they really on the job? Once he wanted all that stuff, they oh this guy's got to go. He's he's really gonna he's really gonna do an investigation. We can't allow that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, so in your good book, we come to the final chapter, which is the conclusion. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about wh- what you, what that chapter entails and, and what we've learned from your investigation. Yeah. Well, the conclusion chapter really tries to, to sum up all of the, the different panels and, and, their, and what they found and how they supported each other. Um, and I try to give some of my own opinions rather than this is the chapter when I can give uh, some opinion rather than having to back up everything with a, a primary reference. Um, and that's what that chapter is about, really. Um, but it, it all comes down to the, the one thing that amazed me right from the beginning and, and which I always start my talks with uh, to various historical societies. And that's the fact that nobody knows how Kennedy died. We, we all know he was shot, but we don't know from which direction he was shot, how many times he was shot, which wounds were entries, which were exits. We don't know the sequence of the shooting. And all of that is down to the fact that the, the medical evidence has been so poorly treated. Uh, and once the government got an angle on what they wanted it to say, they then completely back that up with every review and every doctor who's ever looked at the case and spoken uh, from one of those panels has been supporting the government. Um, and I just, I still think that's amazing that we don't know how it happened. Yeah. Well, with the exception of Cyril Wecht, because you do speak highly of him with your conversations with him that, you know, among 11, 11 or 12 other forensic, you know, people on that panel, yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, yeah. Yeah, right. They're broken down into two panels then, right? So yeah, isn't the, that amazing? The main group yeah. of, of nine people and then three with Cyril. No, the correct? first thing they did was split it into two, uh, one panel of six and one of three. There were nine on the panel. Um, and they, they put Cyril in with a, a panel of complete Warren Commission supporters um, and then kept him away from interviewing Humes and Boswell. The other panel interviewed Hughes and Boswell and kept him well out of it. And he's furious to the day that he didn't get to ask his questions of those guys. Um, he did get to question Fink, but Fink's a, a very strange guy. And Well, let's talk I, I about him just a little bit, because I yeah. think, you, you you know, you were saying in the book or even earlier that he was just really over his head. Yeah, I, he, he was. I mean, he wasn't as experienced as he uh, was made out. Um and then he was shipped off to Vietnam to keep him out of the way. And then each time he was brought back to speak to one of the um, the investigating panels, particularly HSCA and later the ARRB, his, his memory just got worse and worse. Now, when he spoke to the HSCA, it was only 15 years after the, 
the event. It must have been the most important autopsy he'd ever done. Certainly would have been the most um, searing medical event in his career. And and you think back 15 years, what, it was 15 years ago? That's I can remember things from 15 years ago very, very well, clearly. And he would have remembered that. And yet in his his testimony, he's forever saying, I can't remember or I'm not sure about that. Um, and by the time he got to the ARRB, which was 30 years after the event, his lack of memory is clinically, um, it's all, almost bordering on being a disease because he couldn't even remember what was in a box that he looked at the day before. Um, I think has, has been no help at all. Uh, it's not certainly not clarified anything. It's always stuck to the government line. He, he wouldn't say anything without referring to the report. So he would only um, answer a question if he could read it first. Yes. I don't know if he, he's still alive. Do you, Len? Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I know Boswell and Humes are both dead. I, I assume he, he's gone. Um, but of course, he lived in Switzerland. It, it would have been a, a relatively um, easy matter for me to try and find him, I suppose. But I doubt whether he would have spoken to me. Is the thing is, regardless of that, the American government is holding the records and they're just releasing, you know, it's almost an insult. I don't know why people are not more insulted, but they just hand out like candy, a few documents every couple of years. Here's a few more. And people go through them and they go, this is nothing. This is, you know, this is not the records that we've been wanting. And like Tucker Carlson said, the CIA killed him. Otherwise, they would reveal, you know, what they knew about the topic. But yeah. what they know about the topic is not complimentary. And as a matter of fact, I even made a comment um, from Judge Napolitano that he was talking to Trump and he said, why did you not release them? And he, and he said, Trump said this, if you saw what I saw, you would realize why I can, we can never release them. And he mm -hmm. said, I can't talk to you on a, on a normal telephone. So, you know, meaning that his phones are tapped too. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's just a little anecdotal story, but it lets you know that, yeah, it wasn't a lone assassin. It wasn't Lee Oswald in particular. It, it wasn't Commission Exhibit 399. And as you start going down the chain of, well, you, you call it, you know, medical betrayal, you find out that when you look into what really happened and where the wounds are and what the documents show that um, it's just a fraud and a, and a betrayal. I think it is. Yeah. Uh, and maybe more people are not interested because, you know, other large events have kind of taken over. Um, I mean, who is, who's interested in 9-11 anymore? Very few people are interested in it. Um, much, much more um, has been written about that than most people have, have read. Uh, and yet we have nothing. We have no great movement to un unlock the records there and find out about uh, the building that came down. What uh, was it? Building seven? Yeah. Building seven stories. Yeah. It wasn't hit by any aircraft. Right. And yet but, but if the you same. see the video footage of it, you instantly say, well, that's a controlled demolition. Look at yeah. that. And then you think, you know, it looks pretty similar to what happened in building one and two. Well, if yeah. those were pre-wired, um, are they just waiting for somebody to come and, uh, you know, hijack a plane and then, you know, so we don't have to get into all that. But, yeah, at some point, people are going to go through history and, and say enough is enough. This, 
uh, form of Justice Departments and FBI and, uh, you know, I'm not pro-Trump at all, but, you know, sometimes when I see what's gone on with this FBI and all these Twitter documents of how the government is shutting everybody down, I, I kind of sympathize. But, you know, yeah, it's crooked, and it's a, even more crooked than I thought. And my friends don't even ha- know half of what I've been investigating. So for me to be shocked, uh, by even by some of these Twitter revelations about how the FBI had a whole wing there in Twitter. They were paying, I think, $3.4 million to have people in there to shut people's accounts down, to delete things. I'm not even on Twitter, really. I, I think Black Op Radio has a... But I have an attitude for years. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't have a personal one. I have a Facebook page, and I have, uh, uh, you know, the Black Op Radio website. But, um, you know... No, I don't tweet either, but... Yeah. Um, I just I wonder how if people did know about these things, how frightened they would be or upset. Yeah. 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 There is supposed to be an anti-war protest, I think, February 18th in Washington, D.C., about saying, you know, uh, you know, enough is enough. We've given 100 billion to Ukraine and, um, you know, it's just going to start World War Three. So uh, that's a different topic and we'll get into it. But there (laughs) there is an an anti-war movement growing as i know jimmy Dore and a bunch of people will be in washington uh coming up and uh you know i i like this one i think it was a german politician saying uh we will support ukraine in spite of what our um uh constituents say you know i'll be with you and you think that's that's a pretty bold statement like what have they got on you because, you know, you're just saying in spite of, you know, and, and we could negotiate or you could imply neutrality or NATO or you get on to all that. But you're just saying you're going to start sending in tanks even if the people vote against that, you know. And it, it really, I thank Elon Musk for making a lot of these revelations because you wouldn't think it could be so crooked. So if if someone says, you know, well, the government, they wouldn't kill their own president. Well, you, I can show you how they would. Or or a candidate, Bobby Kennedy, or yeah. Martin Luther King. If you're these guys are anti-war, they're bumped off. Yeah, you know, and yeah. uh, and it's gonna take books like yours and and people doing the investigations to say this is really what happened. I mean, you you don't point a finger at anybody in particular, like Alan Dulles or somebody else. You just say in the medical evidence, the whole thing is a fraud. It's a cover up. It's a, a it's a sham, and I can prove it, and and here it is. But I think worse is what the government said happened could never have happened. It's not like, you know, uh, they got it half right in a couple of areas. I disagree with them. It isn't like that. No, no, the, and the single bullet theory is the the real undoing of them, because it it just couldn't have happened that way. Even if they didn't have a bullet, it would be better than saying Commission Exhibit 399. <laughs> you know, if they just said, well, one bullet did it and we can't find that bullet, you might say, well, okay, uh, maybe strange things happen. But then they show you the bullet and you just go, no way. Hang on, yeah. 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 And, and that's but uh, that's uh, one of Cyril's, um, Cyril Wecht's, uh, it's always said, you know, just show me one other bullet that's ever done any half that amount of damage. And right. come out in that state. It was and, an ed- uh, Edgewood Arsenal. Can. You, I don't know if you show the picture, but Cyril often does. They did test bullets. They did test firings, and all of them, even through one bone, are mushroomed. 
distorted, just broken up. There's no way seven moons happened and the bullet looks like that. Yeah, the pictures in my book, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Sorry, uh, I just no, forgot where fine. it was, but, you know, no. because... because it's Cyril's picture, I just reproduced it. Right, and, and I'm saying that a lot of people may know some of these facts, but your book just kind of buttresses it there. But uh, the difference is that you have a running commentary of what's really going on, I think, with, with the various people in these panels. Clark panel, Rockefeller, House Select Committee and Assassinations, especially those three panels, so that, um, you know, you're not making a case of actually who killed him. It's just that what they said is a, is a total fabrication, and that's what we should be concerned about. Yeah, the book is about how, how he died rather than who did it. All right, Mr. Kent, thank you so much for taking time today. Before we wrap up, is there something you'd like to add that I didn't get to? Um, I was just looking through my notes, and um, no, I don't think there is. Uh, we went through all the panels, which is great. Um, I, I'd just like to thank everybody who's bought the book already, and thank you for bringing it to everybody's attention and for your kind comments on uh, what took a, a lot of time to actually explain all of those things um, in a way that I thought the layman would be able to understand and uh, I'm grateful that I've managed to do that and thanks for having me on of course yeah well it, it is surprising well I just I like to have someone on that has something um, worthwhile and it doesn't always have to be new but in this case it's a kind of 50 50 I know the topic but you added a lot of insight to some of these backroom conversations, uh, documents, why they weren't even there, how they were omitted. And and that's what I found worthwhile that I want to make sure people know about this book. And and the similar thing that um, Monica, Monica's book does. You know, I didn't know, I knew a lot about John Kennedy, but I didn't quite know foreign policy and so many things that he was doing. And, and, and then you realize what we lost here. So this isn't just uh, any murder. This is something that we, John Kennedy... Uh, you know, how many John Kennedys are going to come along? And if another one does, we got to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen. And yeah, uh, that's what's of, of, of interest. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> geez, I almost feel sorry for America. I mean, Joe Biden, I mean, oh, you know, I, I liked him and I didn't have anything against him too much. I, I had some problems with the way he was uh, trying to go after Snowden. And, and I didn't just think he was the greatest or anything, but it was kind of neutral. Um, and then uh, you get the idea that Trump is going to get back in oh. uh, because so many people are just anti-Biden and uh, and the the CNN FBI and the and the the fraud of the the whole Hunter Biden laptop. They, could, they and everything is Russian uh, Russian collusion. And then you find out it isn't at all. You can see the backlash will be they'll vote the other way. Or, yeah. You know, regardless of or good or bad Trump is, you you kind of think wow. Well, do you think Joe will run again as well? Is he? I hope. Is he not. running out still? I hope, Can you imagine that there's nobody better? Like you know. Well, no. You know, we'd like to say here we offer someone better, and here's someone who can uh, do something. That would be a, a tragedy to have the same choice again. Yeah, because, either of them, like really. Say, yeah. I mean, in, I, in 220 million people, this is the best we can do. Come on. Yeah, yeah, and that's what they're saying. So then you know that the fix is in that they don't want to offer anyone that would make a difference. Anybody anti-war will be weeded out. 
there'll be yeah. uh, compromised somehow, like on the Epstein Island, right? <laughs> Somebody said that's the most secure document in America, the client list. Yeah. <laughs> nobody yeah, nobody knows about that. They're not releasing that, right? No. But no, uh, it's never going to come out. But they're raiding uh, Joe Biden's garage to find documents there from who knows what. I, I, I almost am so cynical. I think they planted them there to have something on him to maybe force them not to run again. Well, you've had this scandal. I don't think you should run. For the better of the party, you better just step down. Oh, man, you are a cynic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right, uh, Mr. Kent, thank you so much for writing the book, and thanks for taking time to talk about it today with me. You're welcome, Len. Thanks for having now, me. Now, you mentioned you're on to something else. Do you want to talk about that at all? Are you writing a new book? Uh, sure. I, um, I'm not sure how, how interesting it will be to your um, to your listeners, but um, I'm writing a book about uh, the uh, Nazi war crimes trials, and uh, I was surprised as anybody to find out that uh, there were hundreds of trials, and certainly they were not done in Nuremberg. The uh, British tried hundreds of trials in their own zone of northwest Germany, and most of them were tried in one place in a converted theatre in Hamburg. And so what I've been looking at is the, the trials that took place in that theatre, and I've, um, I've kind of, I've categorised them into um, people who were killed in slave labour camps or um, who were British prisoners of war, um, and I've written about each each of the cases, each of the trials, um, a little bit of the background about um, why those people were brought to court. Um, and it's it's absolutely fascinating. I got totally engrossed in it. I'm spending a, a lot of time reading German documents. I've travelled to Germany, um, spending a lot of time in our national archives for a, tra a change. Um, because they were British trials, all the transcripts are in the National Archives in London, rather than having to come to Washington or, or look at uh, American archives, I can actually do it in my own country. Um, so that will be the next book. It will be called The Curio House Trials. Um, and you can look out for it probably in a couple of years' time, because firstly, um, I've got to write it and find a, a publisher. But um, secondly, it will probably be published to coincide with the anniversary of the uh, Second World War ending, which will be in uh, 2025. Okay, very good. Well, uh, get a friend to make you a website or make your own Facebook page so people can get in touch with you and we can know where to buy more of your books. Sure, it's on Amazon, of course, but yeah. um, please do put my uh, email address on your, your website. And All right, I will. All right, thanks. Thank you so much. All right, All right good night. Bye-bye.